Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. A Worried World is tuning in on Rachel Carson again for lots of good reasons, and so are we. She was a hard scientist of the environment who could speak bluntly about her masterpiece, Silent Spring, for example. She called it The Poison Book, or sometimes Man Against the Earth. She was a common-sense crusader who won sweeping victories. She wrote high-flying prose about oceans, for example, before she'd even seen one, and about the love of her life as time was running out. Her opening chapters of Silent Spring can sound today, it is said, like God calling the world into being back in creation time. Here is Rachel Carson in her own speaking voice on a CBS television special in 1963. The tone was matter-of-fact and then unforgiving. Man's attitude toward nature is today critically important simply because we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. But man is part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. I truly believe that we in this generation must come to terms with nature. And I think we're challenged, as mankind has never been challenged before, to prove our maturity and our mastery, not of nature, but of ourselves. We are getting closer this hour to a scientist with a vision who became a wildly popular writer in a dangerous decade after World War II. Maria Popova will share her own modern transcendentalist reading of Rachel Carson, but first comes Sandra Steingraber, herself a leading environmental scientist and writer who edited the wide range of Rachel Carson's output into two volumes for the Library of America. I asked Sandra Steingraber to place herself and others today in what has to be called the Rachel Carson tradition of writers in science. I think what Rachel Carson offered all of us who labor in her vineyard, so to speak, is the belief that we all have the right to a safe environment. And if other people or corporations or governments are, without our consent, creating risk to our health and risk to our children's future by crashing the climate or releasing toxic chemicals that cause cancer or birth defects into the environment and therefore into our bodies, that we have the right to know and that we also have the duty to act. As a scientist, we have extra responsibilities because we know more. It turns out it's nobody's job to take the findings of science before policymakers and our elected officials. And so Carson believed that scientists had to have the courage to do that themselves, to represent their own data and insist that our laws reflect what the science is telling us. And she did it, of course, beautifully. How did you come to Rachel Carson yourself? I'm the youngest person who actually recalls the publication of her groundbreaking book, Silent Spring, because I was only three years old in the early 60s. Of course, I couldn't re even read the title of the book at the time. But my father, who was a World War II veteran and a high school teacher of business and a dyed-in-the-wool 
Eisenhower Republican who voted a straight Republican ticket and was a deeply conservative man, he taught Rachel Carson's Silent Spring as a high school textbook. And so every day he would walk home from school and I remember this green book coming out of his briefcase and it was not only a book that I saw my father carrying around, but all the adults, um, including the bus driver, had it tucked under the windshield when my mom and I would take the bus into town. My father threw away his spray cans, and we had amazing packages start to arrive in our household, including packages full of ladybugs and praying mantises, which he then used for organic pest control. And by the time I was seven, I was actually put to work selling organic tomatoes at the side of the end of the driveway and had to explain to my customers who Rachel Carson was. So she has been a presence in my life almost from the very beginning. What is the magic? What was the magic 60 years ago? Right. Well, there's a couple things, I think. And one of them was the end of World War II and all of these returning GIs, including my father, who had experience with DDT because it was used as a weapon of war to halt a typhus epidemic among our troops in Naples, which is where my father was stationed. And there was no advanced testing of safety, of course, because it was deployed under the secrecy of wartime and for urgent purposes. So one of the things that Carson was able to do was to write to that audience of these um, veterans like my father and explain to them that these chemicals might have had a hero's role in winning the war, but now they were being brought into our bedrooms. DDT was used to moth-proof baby blankets. They were added to house paint so that flies would die if they landed on your walls. They were used uh, in the backyard gardens, and that these were very powerful weapons of war that did not belong in a peacetime environment. And for my father then, Silent Spring was really his kind of armistice. He wanted to lay down these weapons. He suffered terribly from what we call PTSD now. And his garden was the way that he dealt with his inner demons. He didn't want any sort of wartime chemicals there. So Silent Spring talked to him in that way. It also came into publication just as the general public was getting very alarmed about radioactive fallout. And Carson knew all about this. She was in contact with the scientists who, for example, were gathering data on the baby teeth that were full of right now radioactive substances. And every time there was an above ground atomic test, the level of radioactivity in baby teeth went up. She was aware that the public understood for the first time that environmental hazards could be globalized. They could drift across an entire continent. That was a new idea at the time. And so she wanted to talk about pesticide drift and use imagery and language that would resonate with her readers who were already becoming increasingly concerned with radiation from the Cold War. That was another way that she was successful in reaching a big audience. And then President Kennedy championed the book. And that turned out to be almost accidental because Carson's publication date would have corresponded to the Eisenhower years. And it might have never reached, you know, the kind of popularity it did. But it was delayed by two years because she was diagnosed with breast cancer in the middle of writing this book and was very ill by the time she finished and only lived another 18 months. And so the delay actually meant that the book arrived in publication at a time when um, those in Washington were, were ready to hear it. Jill Lepore has written that 
as you said, I can't shake the feeling that if she were writing Silent Spring now, nothing would change. I love your variety of things that were so, so different about that post-war society. I think part of the explanation is that science occupied a very different um, space, a more exalted space in the culture in the late 1960s and the early 60s. Because of the Cold War, science was seen as something that we all admired. And Carson's problem was not so much that scientific findings were being questioned as they are today with, for example, climate science, but rather she was not considered the right messenger because she was a woman. And as some of her detractors in industry and the government like to say, and I think it was coded, she was a spinster. And I think that was code for the fact that she they, they were raising questions about her sexuality. And she was a woman who loved women and needed to keep that a deep secret. She also kept secret her cancer diagnosis. So the problem was her autobiography, Mm. but she was a brilliant scientist. It was her as a messenger that she had to fight against. Whereas making a scientific case, like we who are science writers now just (laughs) feel like the disinformation machine is all geared up and ready to go in a way that Carson also had to struggle with industry pushing back but they've gotten better at it. They learned from Carson how to get out in front of what we're trying to say and create a lot of noise and create doubt in the minds of our readers and allow our readers to believe often falsely that there's a debate within the scientific community when there is not. Sandra, it's fascinating. In the CBS report special on Rachel Carson's book, any number of government scientists came forward and said, basically, she got it right. We're underfunded. We don't know what we think we know. But they hadn't said that in public. Where were the government scientists all this time? Well, they thought they had done their work by gathering the data and didn't feel, as Carson did, part of her struggle was to convince them in her private letters to them to share their data so that at least she could write about it. And sometimes they were reluctant even to do that because they feared for their own careers. That's where Carson felt very impatient. She was very clear that the role of science was not just to kind of generate data, but rather at the end of the objective analysis, if you have evidence that people are going to be harmed, that life itself will be diminished, then you have an ethical responsibility to come forward with your evidence and tell it to the political leaders. The disinformation machine was younger then, uh, but it was bolder. The JFK exception is almost funny. He had to overrule, really, his agriculture secretary in sort of boosting the book that may have come through his brother Bobby's friend, William O. Douglas. It's hard to keep track of all the coincidences that built this book. At the center of it, strikes me, is William Shawn, editor of The New Yorker, when editors were editors. He was threatened with lawsuits almost as soon as he showed any interest in the book, and suits be damned, he was in love with this book. That's a good point. And uh, Houghton Mifflin, her publisher, also were threatened with lawsuits and also pushed back hard. So she was surrounded by a kind of almost security detail of publishers and editors who were willing to 
not be bullied by a chemical industry. And then because she won every single possible writing award for this book, she was able to use her speeches, her acceptance speeches, to push back against the disinformation campaign that did exist at the time. So for example, in a speech before the Garden Club of America, she says, when the scientific organization speaks, whose voice do we hear? that of science or of the sustaining industry. It might be less serious situation if this voice were always clearly identified, but the public assumes it is hearing the voice of science. So she was already seeing the way industry could speak in scientific language and claim to be objective science when they were actually just the chemical industry wearing a costume. She was very good at the end of her life using the opportunity to give speeches to articulate what was happening, and she was very forceful about it. Coming up, the double burden on Rachel Carson's successors to master the data and to make it sing. This is Open Source. Sandra Steingraber is telling the story of a breakaway scientist who got loved and listened to at a critical moment that sounds a lot like our own. When you look personally, as a writer in her tradition, at her science and at her prose, I mean, inventory your own feelings. Inspiration, maybe? Envy, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I read Carson's work like a carpenter looks at another carpenter's fine cabinet. I'm looking at how she how she did it. Tell us. What impresses me about her writings is that they are absolutely balanced between the literary and the scientific. She spent time reading her work out loud and making it metrical. In the C books, you see almost iambic pentameter at work, this kind of Shakespearean rhythm when the tides of the ocean are moving. Um, It's very solemn and majestic. And then when there are chase scenes under the water, she's narrating the drama of a marine ecosystem. She'll change up the rhythmical patterns and change up the energy to make it very speedy. If there's um, a suspenseful moment, she'll jam it all up with different syllables, what we would call enjambment in poetry. So she, she spent a lot of time making her writing sing, and at the same time, her ability to piece together science across the literature from epidemiology, endocrinology, wildlife biology, the new findings of cell biology. Each one of these studies was like a little jigsaw puzzle piece, and she assembled them all. And we have so many more puzzle pieces now. So when I sit down to write about some of the same topics that Carson wrote about, I have maybe 200 studies about endocrine disruption and its ability to interfere with an enzyme system. She might have had one or two, but she was able to see the pattern. She was able to extrapolate. It wasn't so much that she was prescient or prophetic. She was just a really good scientist who could extrapolate with the data she had available to her. Her genius was both that amazing ability as a scientist to see the emerging patterns in the data, and then her amazing ability as a writer to make it sing on the page. So in both cases, she had this sense of wonder that she brought to her work, where as a biologist, she wanted to solve the mystery. So she stood in wonder at a mystery, and she wanted to solve it and present it to us. But as a writer, she wanted to just say, behold the mystery, behold the wonder. 
both of those things are equally balanced in her work. That's how I see it. And I do use that as a model for myself. I think what has happened in my lifetime, and I was born in 1959, so between my adult life and Carson's, feminism really opened up a space to work in the first person that Carson didn't have available to her. So I feel confident and comfortable creating narratives in my own writing that move between first-person memoirs. So I'll put myself in the story as you see me as the detective kind of trying to solve an ecological mystery of some kind. And I might tell the story of the birth of my own children. I might explain my, my own cancer diagnosis in a way that Carson, of course, could not. Carson could not talk about being a woman who loved women. I feel like I can do that. Casting a kind of queer eye on ecology is something I'm really interested in. And there's a lot of us now who are queer biologists who are looking at nature outside of a heteronormative structure. That was something that Carson couldn't really play with. I'd love you to expand on that. First, do modern scientists still say, behold the wonder, male or female? I feel like we do. I don't know if we exactly use that same language, but we're certainly want our readers to feel in awe of the natural world and the way in which we exist in an exquisite communion with it. For example, every time we breathe, we're inhaling a pint of atmosphere with every breath. And then we are, of course, breathing in the oxygen that plants provide us, breathing out the CO2. Half of that oxygen comes from the world's plankton, the other half comes from the world's trees. And the plankton stocks are now in trouble because of climate change. So talking about the breath that we breathe, the literal inspiration into our lungs is a climate change story. And I'm interested in telling that, you know, deep in the chest walls of all of us is a story of climate change. That Mm. kind of moving between the interior and exterior is something that Carson did so brilliantly. And I go back to her work all the time when I figure out how I want to narrate my own climate stories, because she was cinematic in her ability to have us looking at, for example, an entire Arctic landscape, almost as an aerial view over the entire ecosystem. And then suddenly, she'll just zoom in to the embryo inside one egg of an owl, and she'll trace the blood pulsing through the unborn owlet. She goes between the the microscopic world and then this large ecosystem world. Mm. And there's drama in that movement, right? It's like a camera moving from, you know, the establishing shot of the landscape (laughs) and then suddenly you're inside of an egg. And I just love that kind of movement. And I certainly play around with that myself as I narrate stories that begin in the, uh, you know, maybe deep in the groundwater and then end up in our blood plasma. What is the outlook of a queer scientist these days? Define that perspective or just give us examples. Sure. So one of the new books out that I'm particularly excited about is Taylor Brorby's book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. And Taylor is a natural historian who grew up in rural North Dakota. And on the one hand, as a young boy uh, growing up gay in a very hostile place, found solace in nature that he didn't find you know, in the playgrounds of his uh, middle school. He narrates that story as looking at the kind of flamboyance of nature, male birds with 
amazing plumage. He describes it like they're walking around in their mother's high-heeled shoes. And nature <laughs> turns out to be as queer and wild as you can possibly imagine. There's a lot of sexual fluidity, changes between males and females. There's a new group now of natural historians who are kind of examining the queerness of the natural world. What is that? Maybe I can describe it by explaining its opposite. Like, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the behavior of white-tailed deer. And most of what we know about white-tailed deer come from studies of bucks because they're the ones that are shot. They're considered trophies. They have antlers. And so we don't know a lot about the feeding behavior of does. And I actually focused my research on that because does the females travel with their yearling sons and have very social groups during the winter. And so their feeding behavior actually shapes the forest. Whereas the bucks are off there kind of as solitary creatures and they don't really interact with the females except during the mating season. We have this kind of wrong-headed vision of what male deer are like because they're presented to us in natural history museums as always kind of leading the harem of females out of the mountains and into the valley and protecting the females and challenging other males. And it turns out it's a much more complicated story than that. And there are many animal species that have same-sex behaviors and that fill roles that are far outside of reproduction per se. And so if we're blind to that because we somehow think that nature is only heterosexual, then we don't begin to understand the incredible complexity that sexuality plays in the natural world. There's an important correction being made now by a new uh, generation of natural history writers and queer biologists. Sandra Steingraber, you say that Rachel Carson strives so that we could see the world through the eyes of a biologist in exquisite communion with nature. Talk about that communion and the exquisiteness that's her ultimate legacy, is the idea that the environment is not something outside of ourselves, but rather we exist within it and it exists within us. So she continually shows us the ability of, for example, the pesticide DDT sprayed by crop dusters, piloted by returning Air Force pilots, laying down this barrage of poison across an entire landscape and then moves inside the body of one squirrel who you see having convulsions and its little teeth are now biting the dust, convulsing in a kind of agony. So it moves from this kind of beautiful aerial view all the way into the body of an individual and she'll take us inside the cell itself and look at genetic switches being turned on and turned off as best she understood them, hormones being silenced or activated, and the idea that these chemicals could cross the placenta and find their way into the prenatal environment, which of course is another ecosystem with this marine mammal floating around in its amniotic fluid. And she raises questions then that we can now answer, but at the time there were questions for her about what it means to be poisoned in the prenatal environment and what kind of risks to health 
would then present themselves. She talked about seeding a slow epidemic. And it turns out that she was correct by saying that future generations will likely not forgive us. I'm a member of the future generation that she was talking about, who was a young child at the time she was writing. And we know that girls who were exposed to DDT in childhood are at higher risk for breast cancer as adults. So that's something that she was able to predict in broad brushstrokes that we actually have now solid data about. So many poignant connections here. Of course, she loved Thoreau, but she said to another nature writer, Edwin Teal, she wrote, of course, Thoreau had the whole idea in a sentence to it. If thou art a writer, write as if thy time were short, for it is indeed short at the longest. And here she is hearing this with an early diagnosis of cancer, which she did not much write about, and she didn't want it known. Sandra, you wrote a book called Living Downstream, An Ecologist Looks at Cancer and the Environment. What would Rachel Carson want to ask you about her own illness and her very premature death? Um, That's an actually amazing question. I think that she didn't really have many questions about herself. She really was in service to the world. So she didn't have a language for us about her relationship to her own body. And in fact, when she talked to her beloved Dorothy after her mastectomy, she only referred to her hurt side, which is interesting language Mm. because we see her in so many other letters with scientists talking shop with them in, you know, all the pharmacokinetics, all the epigenetics, all the endocrinology. She just talks the language of science, even though she doesn't always include it in her public writings. She really knew how to just talk the way scientists talk to each other. But when she talks to Dorothy about her body and her fears around cancer and its spread, she uses almost 19th century language to talk about injury and her hurt side and dark shadows. Mm. And so her idea was that she wanted to live in order to continue to write. She saw herself as masterful at this. She had a pretty I would say, good sense of ego around her work and felt like she would continue to have something to say. She didn't want to end with what she called her poison book. She wanted to go on and make other connections and write even kind of bigger books about how humans exist in the natural world. And so her concerns were less about her embodied self and her sexual self as they were about, I still have things to say and I need to be able to say it. And I also need to champion this book because I worked so hard to make this case. And so she was grateful that she lived long enough to finish it. And I should say that one of the things I like to talk about in the introduction to her work was the way this wasn't just a lone project. Her publicists, as well as her detractors in industry, kind of presented her as this lone woman and kind of reclusive and fragile. And that makes a good myth. But the fact of the matter is that she was surrounded by lots of women, some of whom had organized a committee called the Committee Against Mass Poisoning and was actually filing a lawsuit against aerial spraying of DDT and it was wending all the way to the Supreme Court. They had the power of legal discovery. Carson herself had served as a federal scientist, so she knew where all the bodies were buried and who had the data. And so between the women who were gathering 
uh, data for the lawsuit and Carson herself, they were able to work collaboratively. One of these women was Marjorie Spock, by the way, who was the sister of the pediatrician Benjamin Spock. And so these women actually, in the end of Carson's life, moved into her house with her. Carson, at this point, her breast cancer had spread into her cervical vertebrae, made her writing hand go numb. So she dictated parts of the last few chapters. And so it was this kind of collaboration of many very smart women who really brought Silent Spring forward, even though Carson was portrayed as kind of a lone voice against this kind of overwhelmingly male scientific community. Speak of her courage. I mean, there she was, up against Monsanto, speaking her mind in a very relaxed, direct, very well-chosen words of what she knew to be the truth. Yeah, that's right. She refused to be bullied. And in fact, in her private letters, which I really enjoy, my editor at Library of America, um, Matt Parr, gathered a lot of these out of the obscurity of the archives. And we just loved reading them because she complains bitterly about her colleagues, all men, who knew but were too afraid to come forward with the data. And she actually, in one of her letters, mistakenly thinking she was quoting Abraham Lincoln, actually, um, nevertheless said, um, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards out of men. She held in dim view the scientists who had evidence for harm, but would not speak truth to power, or maybe we would call it speaking data to power. She thought something was wrong with them, that they led diminished lives, that this was not an ethical choice. And she was very courageous in putting forth the data all the way to the end of her life. She just would not allow the industry to attack her work and not challenge them. We could almost imagine what she would be writing about climate change and, in fact, wrote about it in 1951. I want to know what she'd be saying about artificial intelligence, especially also about gene editing of the human species, which some scientists mostly under their breath, considered extremely dangerous. Right. I think her bigger thesis in Silent Spring helps us. It's almost easy to imagine what she would have to say. And it's basically this, that human beings tinker around with things in nature and we are not seeing the whole picture. And then the natural world has its own way with things and there are always unintended consequences for us. That's kind of the thesis, really, of Silent Spring, which in the narrowest sense is about the toxicological properties of 19 different pesticides. But this larger idea is why the book speaks beyond itself, right? The idea is that if we are tinkering around with a very complex system and we don't understand it very well, then there will be consequences for us And that the trick is to identify those consequences and act on them before, as she said, the industry becomes entrenched and profits start being made because then it's almost impossible to get rid of it. So I see a real parallel between where the pesticide industry was in the early 60s just beginning to take off using chemicals that had been used as chemical weapons of war Um, And now we're turning them to peacetime usage. She wanted to ask us not so fast and let's stop and look at the risks we're taking before this whole industry becomes entrenched. And it became entrenched anyway. But I think we could easily take her thesis and apply it to the climate crisis. I think that's 
where we're stuck now, right? That it's not that we don't have the science. We've had enough science since I, I think since about 1988 to know where this is going. But we have a very powerful industry that is so entrenched it actually controls governments. And so our elected officials have become deaf to the to the findings of science because there's just no mechanism to act on it. Coming up, how the young transcendentalist Maria Popova got hooked on Rachel Carson's sense of wonder. This is Open Source. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring struck the keynote 60 years ago of environmental awareness and activism. Inaction, too, even climate denial, had been part of the era. But as Sandra Steingraber points out, science keeps vindicating the work of Rachel Carson. The climate science is as clear as it can be. There's no more debate within the scientific community. What we're talking about now is timelines. How fast is this going? There are many tipping points we're keeping an eye on. One of them is out in the oceans, and I think this is where Carson would have had turned her eye, where she's still living today. What would she see? What would she say? She was already by 1951 aware that the ice caps were beginning to melt. They were getting smaller. She was aware that sea levels were rising. But what she couldn't quite put together, because there just wasn't enough data, was the cause of it, right? That was the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere. We didn't start measuring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere until I think around 1967. So she just didn't have an understanding of what was actually driving that. But What we now know is that carbon dioxide is not only a heat-trapping gas in the atmosphere because its molecule is shaped in such a way that it vibrates when it's Mm. struck with thermal radiation from the sun bouncing off the Earth's surface that would otherwise at night disappear into the solar system. But instead, if that reflected heat hits a molecule of CO2, it would start to kind of dance up there in the sky. And I think she would be very interested to think about the way in which carbon dioxide, on the one hand, is a blanket that allows us to live. Because without it, Hmm. you know, the whole oceans would freeze into an ice rink every single night that the Earth turned away from the sun. And it would be like the Disney movie Frozen. Hmm. It's not because we have exhaled breath of all these living creatures that serve as a blanket that keep us all alive. So life begets more life. Just by breathing, we're making life possible for the creatures who come after us. I think she would be very interested in that and interested to think about the ways in which digging up these fossilized corpses from the Devonian era in the form of coal, oil, and natural gas, a kind of unholy trinity of fossil fuels, by lighting those corpses on fire in the you know internal combustion engines that are basically crematoria, we are loading up more CO2 in the atmosphere. So now this blanket is doing things like creating hurricanes, creating droughts, threatening to crash the pollination systems. And when it's absorbed into the world's oceans, it's turning into carbonic acid. So that means the coral reefs that she wrote about the sharks. Shark skin itself is beginning to dissolve. 
as the oceans become more acid um, mm. because the CO2 is turning into carbonic acid. These big cycles, the oxygen cycle, the carbon cycle, these are things that would have captured her imagination. And I think she would have wanted to turn that science into compelling stories to help her readers understand. But again, there are many of us who are doing this work. Bill McGibbon wrote the first book on the climate crisis in 1989, The End of Nature. And it's a beautiful book. And he's gone on and written many others. So there's no loss of beautiful writing to explain to the people what's happening. The problem is not so much a failure of the public's imagination. The problem is that our governments are being held hostage by an industry even more powerful than the chemical industry that Carson was facing off against in 1962. And that industry is? The fossil fuel industry, which is, of course, not only bringing oil, coal, and gas up out of the rocks and igniting it, but also turning a lot of those products of oil and gas like ethane to ethylene to plastics, um, making pesticides out of it. So we have a toxic chemical pollution problem from the petrochemicals, and then we also have a climate crisis Mm -hmm. from the combustion of those same fossil fuels. So this is a kind of a tree of crises with two trunks. How would you make a story of what we all observe, the Migration of lobsters, for example, the decline of fish populations and birds, the disappearance of crabs in the marketplace. So she had a lot of different strategies. In other words, she wasn't a writer who had a kind of one way of telling a story that she just did over and over again. This, the narrative structure that she chose suited her material. So she let that flow out of the material. So her last sea book, At the Edge of the Sea, she wanted to be on a human scale, whereas her earlier work was almost in this kind of awesome, grandeur, majestic scale. But the last one was very intimate. You looked at the world through the eye of a beachcomber walking where the the liminal space of where the sea and the, the land met. And then she did put her first person observations. And so you got to walk with her. She presented herself as the narrator and your companion as you went for this beach walk. So I'd love it if you'd give us a taste of that walking the beach with Rachel Carson. Sure. Whenever I go down into this magical zone of the low water of the spring's tides, I look for the most delicately beautiful of all the shore's inhabitants, flowers that are not plant but animal, blooming out on the threshold of the deeper sea. I knew that they were merely waiting in that moment of the tide's ebbing for the return of the sea. Then, in the rush of water and the surge of the surf and the pressure of the incoming tide, the delicate flower heads would stir with life. They would sway on their slender stalks, and their long tentacles would sweep the returning water, finding in it all they needed for life. And so, in that enchanted place, on the threshold of the sea, the realities that possessed my mind were far from the land world I had left an hour before." Mm. And those of us who have studied poetry would tell you that that's full of anapestic rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) She found the rhythm of the tide to paint that little tableau for us. Sandra Steingraber, thank you so much for taking us further into the world of Rachel Carson. My great pleasure. Thank you very much. Among younger writers of general interest, maybe nobody has written more or better about Rachel Carson than Maria Popova, whose website is the Marginalian, which used to be called Brain Pickings. 
Popova's passion is literature, old and new, that rings with philosophy and inspiration. Maria Popova, did I say you're the closest thing we have, I think, to Henry David Thoreau (laughs) online? No, I mean it. How did Rachel Carson come to you? And I want to know the writing, the work, the spirit that keeps bringing you back. Well, you know, I came into her work through a kind of a improbable side door because I came to the U.S. six days after my 19th birthday on my own with this enormous, uh, I guess you would say, cultural debt, the sense that I will always be catching up to things that are just in the atmosphere for Americans. You came from Bulgaria, as I remember. I did. In some ways, not knowing what my peers here knew was a lovely thing. And with Rachel Carson... I had never heard of her, and it wasn't until about 10 years into my writing life that I came upon one of her least known pieces of writing, a tiny posthumously published book called The Sense of Wonder, which had begun as an essay for Woman's Home Companion, the magazine, under the title Help Your Child to Wonder. Now, Carson at the time had just adopted her sister's son after her sister's death, and was raising him, this small boy. And in this piece, she wrote about how if she could have influence over the fairies that govern children, she would wish that they would gift to each child in the world, she said, a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life as an unfailing antidote against the boredom and disenchantments of later years. And I was so moved by this. All of our intellectual excitations have some sort of emotional foothold, some personal resonance. And for me, my childhood in Bulgaria was not easy by many measures, but nature saved me and my relationship with the natural world was and is my primary love relationship. And reading her in this way, this kindred spirit. I was so taken with her, so I had to know who this was. And of course, I went into a deep dive, and the next thing I found out was the most known thing about her, Silent Spring and her work on pesticides and DDT. And once again, this emotional foothold was there because I was born shortly before Chernobyl. So my early childhood was marked by this enormous event. Much of my childhood, I was in the care of my maternal grandparents who were peasants, people of no means in the countryside in Bulgaria, elementary school teachers who made their own food. We had chickens and hens, pigs, and our own vegetable garden. And all of a sudden, you're told that's not safe. All of a sudden, you have this embodied awareness that the clouds that have drifted over from some other country are now raining poisonous rain into our little garden. So for me, reading Silent Spring and watching Carson communicate with such effortless lyrical fidelity to the realities of science, communicate to people who haven't had that intimate exposure to the interconnectedness of life, awaken that in them. To me, that was so moving. It's so interesting, your own experience, Maria. What I like most about her science writing is that she's writing about us. It's science, of course, but it's the human imagination, human emotions, Do you have favorite examples of that? I do. I would read a passage from her National Book Award acceptance speech because it really distills her refusal to separate the literature of science from the poetry of life. Mm. This is the closest she ever came to a personal credo 
as a writer. So this is 1951, 11 years before Silent Spring. She says, I wonder if we have not too long been looking through the wrong end of the telescope. We have looked first at man with his vanities and greed and his problems of a day or a year, and then only. And from this biased point of view, we have looked outward at the earth he has inhabited so briefly and at the universe in which our earth is so minute a part. Yet these are the great realities, and against them we see our human problems in a different perspective. Perhaps if we reversed the telescope and looked at man down these long vistas, we should find less time and inclination to plan for our own destruction. Yes, yes. Man is a destructive species. The beautiful part about Carson, to me, the most beautiful part is that she saw human nature as a fractal of nature, with these dual capacities inseparable from one another. And she chose to celebrate the generative, despite knowing and not turning away from the destructive. When Rachel Carson won the National Book Award, she had been struggling financially her whole life. She was sole provider for her family after her father died. Finally, she had a little bit of money, and she bought a cottage on an island off the coast of Maine, Southport Island. And there she met one of the local residents who had sent her a warm note of welcome, who had, like the nation, fallen in love with the sea around us. She met Dorothy Freeman. And their relationship very quickly became the emotional center of each of their worlds. Also very ahead of their time in that way that Dorothy was married and her husband, Stan, very much approved and kind of cheered on this relationship. Mm. Their love letters are some of the most beautiful love letters I have ever read, and I have spent 16 years reading primarily love letters. <laughs> and Dorothy was just this incredible force of belief in Rachel's gift as a writer and in her soul as a human being. And when she started thinking about writing Silent Spring, which was, I mean, she really had first proposed the idea. She'd become interested in DDT in 1944. So this is 18 years before uh, she published the book. And she really struggled with this paradox of how to write beautifully about something so ugly. I mean, it was very unlike her books about the sea, which were, of course, this kind of natural poetry of the ocean and the living world. And now all of a sudden it's about destruction. And Dorothy was just her constant champion. And Rachel confided in her. She really was her only intimate bond. Yes. She confided in her about her creative life, her insecurity about the artistic possibility to even make this happen. And Dorothy, I just, I don't know what Silent Spring would have been and if it would have been without all the years of Dorothy just being this primary emotional, yes, yes. intellectual, creative support. So when Rachel was dying, I mean, this was obviously the most heartbreaking thing imaginable, you know, losing the love of your life to death. Yes. They had spent this beautiful September afternoon on the coast of the island 
watching the migration of the monarch butterflies. And they knew, even though neither of them acknowledged it, that this was their last summer together, mm. that Rachel would be gone by the following cycle of the migration. So when she went back home to Silver Spring in Maryland, she sent Dorothy this extraordinary letter yeah. recounting that experience, but really it's her farewell. It's her letter of gratitude and it's her farewell to life, to her love, to to this world, to this living, dying world. Would you like me to read it? Yes, yes. Dear one, this is a postscript to our morning at Newigan. Something I think I can write better than say. For me, it was one of the loveliest of the summer's hours, and all the details will remain in my memory. That blue September sky, the sound of the wind in the spruces and surf on the rocks, the gulls busy with their foraging, alighting with deliberate grace, the distant views of Griffith's Head and Todd Point, today so clearly etched, though once half seen in swirling fog. But most of all, I shall remember the monarchs, that unhurried westward drift of one small winged form after another, each drawn by some invisible force. We talked a little about their migration, their life history. Did they return? We thought not. For most, at least, this was the closing journey of their lives. But it occurred to me this afternoon, remembering, that it had been a happy spectacle, that we had felt no sadness when we spoke of the fact that there would be no return. And rightly, for when any living thing has come to the end of its life cycle, we accept that end as natural. For the monarch, that cycle is measured in a known span of months. For ourselves, the measure is something else, the span of which we cannot know. But the thought is the same. When that intangible cycle has run its course, it is a natural and not unhappy thing that a life comes to an end. That is what those brightly fluttering bits of life taught me this morning. I found a deep happiness in it. So I hope may you. Thank you for this morning, Rachel. Oh, Maria, you read it so beautifully. I feel it so deeply. How can you not? In the meantime, I'm reading The Marginalian with such pleasure and such a lift. And it's wonderful to hear you on Open Source. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for honoring this extraordinary woman who is with us always and needs to be even more with us. Thanks also to Sandra Steingraber. Find her introductions to Rachel Carson's masterpieces in the Library of America editions. They include see around us and silent spring you've just heard a new installment of in search of monsters continuing our limited series collaboration with the quincy institute for responsible statecraft learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine responsiblestatecraft.org and look for an additional short conversation there and also on our site that i'll be having with the world of the quincy institute each week of this series. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source.